there's such a huge misunderstanding of what people think of about a person with autism. So the, I don't know if you've actually read this book or know the story, but as an example, uh, the, one of the things that he did uh, was he got his son after he was like 15 or 20 years old to start using a letter board to, to start communicating, which was totally amazing. I remember seeing the Spellers documentary a couple of months ago, um, and I was totally uh, like thrilled with it. And the thing that was, is so interesting is understanding what that meant, because a lot of our patients come in as new spellers, and one of the things that we have found over the years is that a lot of kids on the spectrum have been grossly underestimated, and a lot of kids have been taught the ABCs, now this is not a letter board, but have been taught the ABCs as a toy, as a game, like I can point to ABC, but they haven't been taught that this is a tool that you can actually use the ABCs to do something, to create something, to communicate. And that is, is, was a huge shift in understanding uh, when I started using le uh, letter boards with our kids in our practice. One of the, uh, so there's four myths that I've seen over the years with kids on the spectrum. Number one is that all kids with autism are the same. And you've probably heard this saying before, when you met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. That's absolutely true. There's such a, a range between the, two, the levels of autism. Uh, so it, it's, it's, all kids are not the same who have autism. Number two is children with autism don't speak. That is completely not true. Everybody speaks. It's just what language do they speak and how do they actually communicate. That's the important thing. So you may not have someone who can speak the same way you and I can speak. It doesn't mean they can't communicate, right? It's two very, very different things. Number three is a, a common thing that parents always tell me. Uh, my kid won't sit still. There's no way you're going to be able to take care of him. I'm like, don't worry. To me, the key, and this is where the polyvagal concept comes in, the vagus nerve concept comes in, is, is all about building trust. Trust is the key in taking care of a kid with autism. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're an ABA therapist, it's all about building trust. And that's the thing we're really gonna hit home with as we go on with this. And number four myth is that a child on the spectrum won't look you in the eyes. Yes, they sure will. They sure will. Now, they may not have eye contact the way you and I can have eye contact, where we can look at each other for, for long periods, but they will definitely have eye contact if you build the trust, if you build a safe place, if you build rapport with that child. So one thing that I, th I love about this book, I don't know if anybody's read this book uh, by Stephen Covey, he's the one who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is there's a different way. There's another way of thinking. And that's what polyvagal theory is all about, is there is another way of thinking about kids on the spectrum. And it all started with this book. So about 2010 or so, I was at a chiropractic seminar, and someone mentioned, just in brief, uh, this book, polyvagal theory. And as he was talking about it, after just the two or three sentences, I said, I think this has tremendous applicability to kids on the spectrum that I've been dealing with over the years. So I started doing research. That's one of the things I do. I teach at Life University, the largest chiropractic school in the world, this in Atlanta. And as an, so I become very academically minded. So one thing that I love is when someone presents something to me, I start researching it. So I, this is the, was the first paper published in chiropractic about how the vagus nerve relates to, to kids with autism. And this kind of started me on my journey of really delving into what does that vagus nerve really mean with kids on the spectrum. So I'm gonna take you on a little bit of a journey 
the, the step one is we're going to go way back into the 1800s. Um, Charles Darwin, we all know Dar Charles Darwin, right? Survival of the fittest and all that kind of stuff. That, that's the stuff everybody knows. But there's stuff that people don't know about Darwin. And one of the things that he talked about in his book, Expression of Emotions, Man and Animals, is when the heart, this is what he said, when the heart is affected, it reacts on the brain. And the state of the brain again reacts through the vagus nerve on the heart. So that under excitement, there'll be much mutual action reaction between these, the two most important organs of the body. There's a heart brain reaction. This is back in the 1870s. Darwin is already figuring this stuff out. Then, a couple years later, another a neurologist, Jackson, says the higher nervous system arrangement inhibits or controls the lower, and thus, when the higher are suddenly rendered functionless, the lower rise in activity. What does that mean? The brainstem, we all, you probably heard people talk about the brainstem already. The brainstem controls whether or not the prefrontal cortex, which is the modulator of executive functioning, it controls whether or not it's tamped down. So if the, if the person is in flight or flight <clears throat> or stressed, then their prefrontal cortex is not operating at its peak efficiency, and that's going to change how that child works, how that even that adult works. And even the first chiropractor, D.D. Palmer, way back in 1895 said, Chiropractic is founded on tone, the nerve system. How does the nerve system work? So now let's fast forward. Now it's 1994, and Dr. Porges creates his first article, which is Orienting in a Defensive World. It's all about defense. It's all about what happened. Like, one of the things that we've noticed over the years with kids on the spectrum is that they have very often a defensive posture. That's what it's called, a defensive posture. A defensive posture is... A lot of these kids will have a posture where one shoulder and one hip is higher on one side, and their head is tilted towards the opposite side like this, and their head is pitched down. Now, wh wh why is that important? Because as a chiropractor, the whole idea is that we need to, we want eyes level, shoulders level, hips level, because that's when the brain and nerve system is working perfectly for input, for sensory, and for motor, for sensory and motor. So we'll see these kids in these defensive postures like this, and the reason they are that way is because like in this room is an example. This room could be a nightmare for kids on the spectrum because of the echo of my voice is so loud, because of the bright lights that are shining over here, because of the air conditioning, because of the projector noises. These things could be a nightmare for kids on the spectrum because there's too much stimulation. And that's one of the things that Porges was kind of figuring out is why do certain kids have certain reactions where other kids don't? So. And what we have to understand is going way back to Gray's Anatomy in 18, uh, early, mid-1800s, the autonomic nerve system was thought to be two parts. So you have the parasympathetic, which is the slow down, rest, digest system, and then you have the sympathetic nerve system, which is the fight-flight, you know, uh, quickening kind of thing. And the, it was thought for over 100 years that the way these things work is like this. It's a balance. One's on, one's off, one's off, one's on. What Dr. Porges created is revolutionary because what he said is that's not how it really works it's actually a hierarchy if you look over here it's a hierarchy there are three levels not just two it's not just going through here and here there's a third level and that what he called the social engagement part of the vagus nerve and now I'm going to explain to you how this all works the vagus nerve essentially trying to make it quite simple the vagus nerve below the diaphragm in other words the diaphragm is about over here below the diaphragm the vagus nerve is all about rest digest but above here 
is all about social engagement. So the heart, lung, uh, brain connection, which I'll explain to you momentarily. And here's the brilliant thing that he came up with. This, I, I, it's, it's so simple that it's amazing. What he said is this. There's something that we all do, all of us right now are doing, and it's called neuroception. And what that is is, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? This is happening 24-7, 365. You're sleeping. Your brain is still saying, are we safe? Are we safe? You're here. Are we safe? <clears throat> You're out there. Are we safe? Here's the deal. What happens if our kids don't feel they're safe? Even in a room like this where nothing unsafe is happening. Do you get what, how important that is? If, if nothing unsafe is happening, but you still feel unsafe, that's where neuroception is so important with kids on the spectrum. So how do we describe, very, to, to show it very simple, what neuroception is? This is freeze. So here's a frog on our hot tub, and I'm about to push him off with a stick, and he's still not moving. Because what a frog does is it st gets stuck in dorsal vagus, and it just goes like this. And until you actually push it away, it will not move. And that's the dorsal vagus. The sympathetic nerve system is the fight or flight. So the squirrel that we, we walk, we open the door to the deck where the, the hot tub is, and the squirrel goes, Dush! runs away, right? That's the sympathetic nerve system. That's how it works. This is the fight or flight or freeze response in kids, right? So you have a child who's in the fight or flight response, and they're having a tantrum and they're kicking and screaming and crying, and they're really scared. You have a kid in freeze response hiding behind mommy or daddy or caregiver because they're afraid. This is the friend response. This is the friend response. Here's a, a young boy on the spectrum, and he's looking in my eyes, and he's giving me a double high five because I have created a space of trust and love and encouragement in our practice. So that's the difference. So that's called positive neuroception. This is negative neuroception. Negative neuroception means that they're they are taking stuff in that other people, maybe neurotypical people, would take in as normal or neutral, but they're taking it in as threat. This is a threatening response. You don't have to think about this. You see a bear, you are in threat. What happens if you can't discern? What happens if your neuroception cannot discern? What happens if you're walking down a path like my wife and I were walking recently in a national park and we were looking across over there on the path. We're like, is that a snake or a stick? And as we started looking, we realized that's actually a snake because it was moving. It was a copperhead. So we're, now we're backing up, right? So we go through, the, we, we go through the, the different levels. First, we stopped, freeze, right, dorsal vagus. Then we are assessing. And now we start backing up, right? Which is the fight or flight or sympathetic. So, so we're, we're going through the different parts of the vagal, of the, what, the, what Porsche calls the polyvagal nerve system. What's happening in this picture though? Here's a young lady on the spectrum who's being sung happy birthday. Most people would find that happy, loving, exciting, right? She's not feeling it that way. She's upset, she's crying, she's going into dorsal vagus and potentially, if this kept on going, maybe start to cry and scream into sympathetics because her neuroception is looking at and listening to happy birthday to you and seeing that's a threat. That's a problem. That's a problem with the nerve system. The nerve system is misinterpreting what you and I would interpret as happy is misinterpreting this. That's where this occurs. 
<coughs> is what uh, Jackson was talking about before and is what Porges calls it, evolution in reverse. So you go from, you should be in, in this nice positive communication, oh, it's not working. You should be in nice positive, happy communication, but what's happening is you go into mobilization because there's threat or immobilization, you're freezing because of a perceived or, or misperception of what's really happening. And one of the things that we need to understand too is that we don't have just five senses. We don't have just five senses. Five senses was taught to us in school, right? When we're in our health classes, we're learning about anatomy, we're taught, well, you got five senses. You got sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell. That's the five senses. There are five more senses. There are five more senses. And there are different ones for different things. Proprioception is where am I? Right, for me to stand here on this stage, I have to figure out where I am and not fall down, right? If the stage was moving because, God forbid, there was an earthquake, right, my proprioception would be thrown off, right? So that's proprioception. Vestibular is where is my head in space? So, and if we get back to that defensive posture. If a kid or even one of you guys, if your head is like this and, you, and your brain thinks this is normal, this is not normal. Your vestibular system is off because your this is horizon should be flat, not like this. Uh, interoception, extraception, what's going in inside and outside my body, and then neuroception, like we explained, is what is happening uh, in the environment? Are we safe or not? Are we in threat? Like all of you right now, I think, are probably in good neuroception, positive neuroception. You don't think that there's any kind of threat. That's the way it's supposed to be. So let's dissect this vagus nerve a little bit. And like we talked about, the dorsal vagus is the thing that controls below the diaphragm, and that develops in the first trimester. So when, a, when a, a baby is just gestating the first couple of months, that's the dorsal vagus. The sympathetic nerve system starts building in the second trimester. Why is the ventral vagus vulnerable? Because it gets built and turned on in the third trimester and in the first year. Now, even though that's a brilliant concept to turn these things on one at a time, as the nerve system is growing and maturing out from a fetus and then after the first year of birth, it also puts that area in a very vulnerable place because so many things can go wrong in that third trimester, so many things can go wrong in that first year, and that's where the vulnerability comes from. So what does the ventral vagus do? Five things. It checks essentially the eyes, the ears, the face and voice, the heart and the lungs. I'm gonna go over each one individually. The eyes, the ears, the face, the voice, heart and lungs. This is an example of a child on the spectrum and he's smiling, but his eyes are, have a flat effect as they call it. In other words, it, it looks like his eyes aren't smiling the way his, his mouth is smiling because the obicularis oculi, when the vagus nerve isn't working, is what they call hypo, H-Y-P-O, Hypotonic, in other words, it's not working as well. It's working underneath its capacity. <clears throat> the ears, this, we talked about this before. In a room like this, I could hear the air conditioning going like this, and the sound and reverberation from, uh, you know, from being on stage and all these speakers and stuff. Very, very challenging to a kid on the spectrum because they're very hypersensitive. Hyper means more sensitive, hypersensitive to low and high frequencies. But here's the key, they're hyposensitive to voice, because voice is mid-range. And one of the most common reasons or things that we'll see in a kid on the spectrum, it, when someone says, I'm wondering if my kid might be on the spectrum, and they're like a year old, year and a half old, is they're not responding to their name. They're not, someone's saying, hey, Johnny, 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 and they have to do this. 
they're clapping or snapping their fingers to make or hitting something. And it's not the voice that makes them respond. What is it? It is the noise that's either high pitched, you know, or low pitch, right? That makes them respond because they have this hyper and hyposensitive issue going on with their ears. And this was proven by Dr. Porsche's in his research. Oral facial hypotonia. Why do a lot of kids with autism have trouble speaking, have trouble eating certain foods? Have, when a lot of kids on the spectrum, when they talk, they talk in a sort of a more monotone voice. Their, their voice, uh, like my prosody you can see is going up and down, they call it prosody. So I can talk high pitch, I can talk low pitch, and I can create different emotions with my voice. A lot of kids on the spectrum have, a, have difficulty with that so that their voice is like this, whether they're happy or sad. This is all the vagus nerve. This is the vagus nerve not allowing the orofacial area to work the way it's supposed to. And then the last thing, which I find the most interesting, is something that you can measure, is heart rate variability through the heart and lungs. The heart and lungs are the, the next key in how the vagus nerve works. And we use something called HeartMath, which I'm gonna talk about in a second. So babies, little newborns, what are the three things that they do? Eat, poop, and sleep, right? All babies, they eat, poop, and sleep. That's pretty much a typical day, eat, poop, sleep, repeat, right? Just like the little ones he says. What do kids with autism tend to have issues with? Eating, pooping, sleeping, and socialization. A lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, according to Martha Herbert, who is from Harvard, her research shows that a lot of kids on the spectrum tend to have GI issues, tend to have latching and nursing issues. Why? Because of the oral facial hypotonia. And the vagus nerve is not working good, so you have a hard time even resting and digesting. Right? So they can't sleep, they can't digest, they have trouble nursing. All these things come in a constellation of symptoms. So Porges came up with this concept. Safety is the treatment. Safety is the treatment. So I can extrapolate that with you, and whether you are a doctor, whether you are a teacher, whether you're an ABA therapist or a parent, your goal is to create safe environment first. Whenever we're working on a child, the way we work on a child and have that child sit still, whether we're in an ABA therapy session and the child is sitting across from us, whether we're in a chiropractic uh, or OT or PT or speech, or as a parent just trying to get the kids to do exercise or sit down and eat dinner, is we have to create a blended state with the vagus nerve. So in other words, the parasympathetic nerve system and the uh, the ventral vagus and the parasympathetic dorsal vagus have to work together. The dorsal vagus making someone freeze or sit still, and the ventral vagus making someone have engagement, social engagement with that person. So that's called a blended state. But how will that occur when we create a safe space? Here's an example of a safe space, right? So these two little ones are lying face down because we've created a safe space in my practice. And, but understand, to ask someone to go face down is very vulnerable. To ask someone to not look with their eyes at what's going on, very vulnerable. That's why we have to build that trust. So we may not start there, but we're going to go there as that child has trust. This is Dr. Porges' latest book, uh, Polyvagal Safety. And in it, what he talks about is retuning the nerve system, retuning it. And I love that because this is very much the concept of like chiropractic and how his work and our work really goes together. Retuning that nerve system to make sure that the nerve system is understanding 
and interpreting environmental cues better. So that in a situation, as an example, in this room where a child might feel unsafe in this room because of the noise, if you can retune the nerve system, now the child feels okay in this room. They, they recognize, I might hear these things, but I am still safe, right? Where you guys don't even recognize, like if I didn't mention that air conditioning droning like this, you probably wouldn't even think of it because you subtract it out. What happens if you can't do that, right? You need to be taught to do that. And that's one of the keys in the polyvagal system. What Dr. Porges says here in a, another paper of his is humans as social mammals are an enduring lifelong quest to feel safe. The need to feel safe func is functionally our body speaking through our autonomic nerve system. How important is this now? I, this is why I'm so glad you guys are here because now you, you guys are gonna understand the neurology behind what's going on with our kids. So what do we want to do is we want to create a healthier plant, planet through this polyvagal lens. And one of the things that I think is important to understand and talk about is this whole concept of adverse childhood experiences. When you have an adverse child experience, there are, are, there are two different kinds of adverse child experiences. There's the big T kind of experience where we don't have to talk about those, but the very, very awful ones. But there's what they call the little T experiences. And I hope you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about, in other words, micro traumas, little things, right? Little things that happen over and over and over, whether they're environmental, whether they're social, whether they're physical, whether it's nutritional, right? Something over and over and over again, getting little trauma, little trauma, little trauma. Those things can start to accumulate. But the key thing I want you to show you in this is the key is if there are any of these little T or big T experiences, they start accumulating, now you're going to affect the way the nerve system grows. You're going to affect neurodevelopment. So that's why in our practice, a lot of the kids that we see who are on the spectrum or eventually be on the spectrum, a lot of these kids are developmentally delayed. They don't crawl at the same uh, time as other kids. They don't talk at the same time. They, they, everything is delayed because the, the neural development is delayed. It's slowed down because of all these, uh, these kind of micro and macro traumas. So here's stuff to do. I'm gonna give you guys things to do. Number one, like I said, whether you're a doctor, you're a teacher, you're an ABA therapist, you're a parent, every day we need to look at these kids. So what we do in our office, every day a kid comes into our practice and if they're on the spectrum, we're gonna look at them and say, where are they today on the scale? And based upon where they are, we're going to change what we do. So a kid who's having a really bad day and is hiding behind mom like this, I'm not gonna do the same kind of stuff as a kid who comes in and is drawing pictures and saying hi and give me high fives. And we're also going to have to do the same thing with a kid who's screaming and yelling, have a tantrum. So the other day, as an example, uh, Wednesday, I, I was in practice. I practice Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, except for today because I'm here. So on Wednesday, I was in practice. This one kid came in on the spectrum, five years old. Normally, he's doing really fantastic. This day, he comes in, he's all crying. Do I do the same stuff I normally do with him? No. We completely switch gears. And But here's the interesting thing is the mom's like, lie down, lie down. I'm like, no. No, let him sit on your lap today. Today, it's a mommy hold Johnny's you know, adjustment today. Instead of the normal lie face down that he had built himself up you know, in over the last six or eight months or so. Because safety is the treatment. Safety is the treatment. So here's step number two. And we all can do this. This is the cool thing. This is the technology I love showing you guys is you guys can measure your kid's vagus nerve. Now, I'm gonna show you two different ways. This is my favorite way, it's something called heart math. Heart math 
is uh, you wear this ear clip thingy that attaches to your iPhone or whatever phone you happen to have. And what it does is it measures the heart rate variability. And that's going to show you how the vagus nerve is essentially doing. Let me give you examples. Oh, for you just taking pictures, go ahead. This is the picture. So give you examples. What heart math does is it measures something called coherence. Coherence. In other words, how is that person relating to the environment? Where, uh, how safe do they feel? So these colors, these colors here, this green color here, I feel safe. This blue color, I feel a bit of a threat. This red color, I feel a lot of threat. What do you think this person, this child here was feeling on, hello, on this side here? What were they feeling? A lot of threat, right? They're mostly in the red, a lot of threat. What is this child feeling? Kind of up and down. A little bit of threat, a little safe, a little bit kind of up and down. What is this child? All 100% green, feeling great, right? So this, this is a, a technological way to measure where they are in the vagus. So you can, you can use the old-fashioned way, which is, you know, throw them on the, where are they in the scale like this, kind of place them based upon their presentation. Or you can use technology and use heart math and do this. Why is this important? Because especially as a chiropractor or an OT or a PT or a speech therapist or ABA therapist, you can see what's happening before it happens. So in other words, here's an example. We were working on this one child. I was measuring this child. And this, so when he first started, he was here and then he started doing this. What do you think we did when he reached there? Very good, whoever said that, good job. We stopped. We said, okay, we're done for right now. We're taking, freeze, right, time out. We're gonna stop and then we're gonna go. So I said, I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna, you know, adjust a few other people. I'm gonna come back in. You feed them, you go to the bathroom, whatever you wanna do, I don't care. And then when we came back in, now the, the child was, we didn't, I don't, I don't have that here, but then he went back up. So that was the key thing, it was a great way. But here's the key, is that he was not exhibiting any sort of outward signs. There was no like, he wasn't starting to crying, throwing, tantruming kind of thing, but his body was getting ready for it, right? His body was saying, I'm going to have a tantrum if we keep this up. And we would not have known that if we were not measuring because there was no outward signs of it whatsoever. <clears throat> now th this to me is a fun thing to do too. I love pre and post. So what we do is we'll measure, here's a child who came in on June 7th of this year and the child was 33% low, 56% medium. So kind of bouncing over here. And six weeks later, look where that person is. Look where she is. She's up in the high zone. Wow. Wow, that's super cool. So what that means is A, what we're doing is helping. B, what those things, because we give recommendations to parents do exercise at home, those things are helping. <clears throat> and C, they are now okay with the environment. So in the beginning, they didn't trust it, but now they do. That's big. That's really big. And I love data. Being an academic, I love data. This is hard data saying, this is where that person was. This is where they are now. We are improving. And what's improving? The brain. The brain. Because when the vagus gets better, the whole brain gets better. This is, to, to me, like, why have I started studying this and have been, like, headlong on this since 2010? Because this is so big, especially for the autism community. <clears throat> if you don't want to get a heart rate variability model like heart math or some of the watches, like eye watches, and uh, some of the Fitbits measure it also. Um, although, I th but it's not quite as clear as heart math. You can use a pulse ox. A lot of you guys may have a pulse ox. 
um, for one reason or another. And the, the biggest issue I have with this is actually getting the kid to sit for 15 seconds without moving their fingers. Um, but other than that, pulse ox is very good. The normal range is 97 to 100%. What you wanna see is how they're doing each encounter. So as an example, we had a kid come in a couple of weeks ago who's uh, on the spectrum. And when she was, when she was sitting and we measured it, she was fine. She lied down, the mom wanted her to lie down very early on in her care, which I usually don't recommend, but the mom kind of insists, says, okay, fine. When she lied down, she started like kind of getting all upset. So we put a pulse ox on her. She went from 98 to 95. I'm like, okay, she does not like lying down. So you get a two point change in a couple of seconds or a minute, that's not good. That means that they're starting to get stressed. So that was a very important way to measure this. And what you're going to see is sometimes uh, with kids under care or kids under your care or as a, a parent, you'll see all of a sudden your kids was doing great and all of a sudden they bottom out. And they're tantruming again, they're screaming, they're crying, they're back stimming a lot, etc. Go back. What that means is go back. So whatever was working before this all started happening, go back a step. Right, we talk about this with concussions too. I see a lot of kids with concussions. So if someone had a concussion and you start to slowly increase their physical and mental activity and then they start having some more issues, the headaches come back, et cetera, we say, don't, go, don't just stop doing stuff, go back <clears throat> to where you were when that wasn't happening. So go back, change what you're eating again, get more strict with that, get, we, we would do different adjustments on this kid, et cetera. We're gonna change and go back and retool. <clears throat> Understand too, if you are a, a pediatric chiropractor like myself and you are trying to take care of these kids, adjustments will not look like traditional adjustments. Kids don't necessarily lie face down when they're in my practice. They'll lie face down when they are ready. So we call that patient-centered care. So in my practice, in the beginning, like as an example with this youngster, on the spectrum, <clears throat> was minimally speaking, came in, he saw, found that toy, you know, you run the cars down like this. He gravitated towards that. He would not move. Anytime he's in my office, that's where he was for the first six weeks. He stayed there. Fine, I'll just adjust him there, right? Not ideal. Is it the idea? How can you, you know, you, you, you want the kid to lie face down for the ideal adjustment, but the whole point is we need to create a safe space. So we create a safe space, and then eventually he started gravitating. He started seeing some of the other kids lying face down. He started doing that too. So it was a gradual process, but it took six weeks to get him away from this toy and onto the bench and then slowly lying face down. So we honored where he was, right? The namaste idea, we honor where you are from the place from where we are. We honored that and built his trust. And when he was ready, he decided to lie face down. <clears throat> A great exercise for the vagus nerve that all of you can do, but that's my favorite for kids, is to have what we, we do what we call belly breathing. So find a nice toy, a toy that they like, and put it on, put it on their belly like this, lying down, not standing, and say, okay, I want you to make the toy go up when you breathe in, and, and down when you breathe out. You will find, thank you, <clears throat> you will find, you will find that a lot of kids on the spectrum do not move their bellies when they're breathing. 
So they're breathing mostly, diaphragm, uh, mostly from the lungs and not below the diaphragm. So what that means is that their vagus nerve, remember the heart and lung connection? Their vagus nerve isn't connecting very well down to their diaphragm. So you've got to teach them this. And it might take a long time for them to understand this concept of when you breathe in, your belly should go up and breathe out, your belly should go down. A lot of people have that, they call it paradoxical breathing. Either nothing happens or it actually happens in reverse. <clears throat> so this is one of my favorite things. And anybody can do this, but I love teaching it to kids. And they'll lift up Mickey Mouse or you know, Donald Duck or Paw Patrol or whatever they want. This is a great exercise for uh, adults or kids on the spectrum who are um, a little bit older and maybe understand directions more. And this is what any, any of you guys can do. If you guys feel really upset, this is a great thing for you guys to do. And I'll show you how to do it. What you're gonna do is you take your hands, you take the webs of your thumbs, right? And you're gonna put your hands together like this. Oh, look at this, everybody's doing it together. This is great. It's like S Simon says. And so now the, the back of my thumbs are on the behind my ear, right? This bump behind the ear that's called the temporal bone. Guess what's inside the temporal bone? The vagus nerve, right? So you go like this, and then you're gonna turn slowly to one side, and with your eyes, look as far as you can to whatever side you're turned to. Hold that for five seconds. Slowly go back to the middle. What am I doing? I'm, I'm massaging my vagus nerve. Turn the other way. Look as far as you can to whatever side you're I'm looking to the left, so look to that left as far as you can. And then slowly turn back to the middle. Do that four or five times. And now, number one, you're massaging the vagus nerve directly through the temporal bone. And number two, the eyes, you're getting the eyes to work also, which is a secondary vagus nerve connector. So I love this exercise that came from Stanley Rosenberg's uh, book, one of uh, Dr. Forge's friends. And so I think for me, that's a, a very exciting way for anybody to do a vagus, it's called vagus nerve reset. <clears throat> so bottom line, if a child enters into your practice, enters into your school, enters into your therapy, or enters into your home, and they are in fight, flight, or freeze, if you are more informed now from the polyvagal perspective, <clears throat> what that means is that you're going to assess them in one of several ways like we've recommended and place them where they are and then alter what you're doing based to, to, with them based upon where they're at on the, on the vagus nerve. So, that to me is a polyvagal informed healthcare, school, household, etc. is now you understand. Now you, now you have a tool to use with the vagus nerve to say where is my child right now and what am I going to do with them based upon where they're at to help them get up and back into social engagement. <clears throat> One of the things that I think is so important is that we all have messages, all of you, not just the people on stage, but all of you have messages to share. I love sharing in my variety of different ways. So we have a podcast called Chirocast. I suggest you make a podcast. Your voice can be heard. Your voice should be heard. So we need to have more podcasts out there about from parents who have kids on the spectrum so that more people understand this and understand the version of concepts that you've been getting here at Taka and that you've learned over the course of your lifetime. Create a podcast for yourself. Um, we do intensives. So what we do is we invite kids from all over the world come to our practice and we will work on them several times a day over the course of a week or two 
to really, and then send them back to their home chiropractor or find one for them if they don't have one to create this. You can do this too. A lot of you guys are, have amazing specialties and amazing gifts that you can share with others to create your own intensives in the community, to share with other people in, in your area about how you can help them, right? All the stuff that you learn, you can give to them. We do speaking engagements. You should speak to your local community. Speak to Rotary, Kiwanis, Knights of Columbus, your churches, wherever you are. Speak to them about this. This is such a big, important topic that not enough people are talking about out there. And uh, we do, I do workshops. I speak all around the world for the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association, for the Functional Neurology Association, for Polyvagal Institute. You speak. Get, we need to get out there. We need to get out there. Taka should, the, the Taka message needs to get out to everybody not just the people here, but everybody out there who works. And at this point in time, there is nobody who hasn't been affected by autism. There are zero people on the planet who have not been somehow affected by autism. That is my mission, is to make sure as many people as possible will understand what is going on out there. So thank you, Taka, for everything that you guys have done. 